0: Yale Podcast Network. Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. I'm a medical student at the Yale School of Medicine, and my guest today is Dr. Carolyn Roberts. She's a historian of science and medicine here at Yale University. I'll let her tell us a little bit more about herself. So my name is Carolyn
1: Roberts, and I'm an assistant professor in History of Science and Medicine and History in African-American Studies at Yale University. And what did you
0: study in History of Science and Medicine?
1: So my research focuses on the history of medicine in the Atlantic slave trade. And so I, in the process of finishing a book manuscript, that would be the first history of medicine in the British slave trade. And I write about it from West African and British medical perspectives.
0: Gotcha. Well, that sounds really interesting. So, why don't you tell me a little bit more, sort of, about the the role that physicians back then had on sort of the progression of the um, of the slave trade? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
1: So, it's it's an interesting story, and often something that is surprising to people to know that there were doctors on slave ships. The British had a long practice of having doctors on board all of their slaving vessels. And in fact, from the earliest voyages that England made to um, West Africa, they had doctors on board. And so, when you're talking about um, tens of thousands of slave ships um, during this period of time, it's a notable number of medical pr- practitioners that are involved. And so, in the research that I've done, reading surgeons' letters, letters from their wives, reading their correspondence to slave trade merchants, one of the things that becomes very prominent in their story is that they are all desperate for money. Mm -hmm. And so the reason for them joining these particular voyages was to help save their families from poverty. It was difficult for a lot of people to make money in medicine mm-hmm. during the 18th century because of the way the medical marketplace was constructed and the numbers of um, patients that could actually you know, pay rather than um, getting sort of services in kind. And so you have a large body of surgeons. Um, they're mainly surgeons during this period of time um, who are getting hired to work on slave ships, to try to make money for their families. And the medicine that they practiced was seeped in violence. And it was one of the part of the stories that I really resisted telling. When I was thinking about this history and I was spending time with their correspondence, their letters, um, letters from their wives. I didn't want the story of medicine in terms of the way doctors were operating to be a story of torture and terror and violence.
0: Right. And so tell me a little bit, how did you get to um, finding their wives' letters and such? Yeah.
1: So I did a lot of research in the United Kingdom. hmm and just went to almost 40 different archival repositories looking for this evidence and came across uh, letters from, um, in particular, one woman. Her name is Jane Dinley, and she was married to a slave a slave trade surgeon named William Dinley. And their story, in some ways, is quite representative of of these slave trade surgeons. She writes at length about how circumstances in the family had changed. Her husband could no longer make money um, in the traditional way. She never got into why. But she said, for the sake of his family, he has to take this particular form of labor. Mm -hmm. She's writing these letters to James Rogers, who is a Bristol slave trade merchant. And part of the reason why she's writing these letters is to make sure that the husband's wages come directly to her so that she can help support the family. And her subsequent letters reveal an increasing level of tragedy mm-hmm. in her life, because she falls sick, falls into debt, and starts to, have, starts to borrow against the husband's earnings. And so her letters get increasingly more desperate. Um, and when you encounter people like that in the archive, She's a a wife, a mother. William and Jane Dinley have seven children. They live in Dumfries, which is a market town in Scotland. I really wanted William's story and the story of other surgeons to be that they really tried to care for the enslaved. That was the story that I was hoping that I would find Mm -hmm. in the archives. And it took me a long time Um, of doing research to reckon with the fact that that was not the nature of medicine in the slave trade.
0: Right. We often sort of think about about medicine as a field of egalitarians, right, like people who joined the field for the simple sake of taking care of people and doing good in the world. But, you know, at the end of the day, when these sort of societal pressures and, like, personal demands, you know, kick into gear... Um, I guess you can sometimes see where um, you know, the field sort of fails um, to uphold its values, I guess.
1: That's true, because the job of a doctor on a slave ship was to keep human cargo alive. One of the most interesting things about thinking about medicine in the slave trade from an economic standpoint is that before doctors even set foot on a slave ship, they had already been negotiating around the African people they would be given as part of their pay.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So they're already encountering their future patients as capital. And they're negotiating to get more. They'd, just to give you a little bit of background, the way that pay worked for the surgeons, they got a monthly wage and they got something called head money for every slave that they delivered alive, but they also got a bonus and the bonus was called privileged slaves. Mm -hmm. So depending on the size of the voyage, Mm -hmm. surgeons would be given between one and three privileged slaves. And that payment worked in a few different ways. In one way, For example, one of the surgeons, Richard Holden, who's this young man who is trying to help support his family, he's being given privileged slaves in this this first mode. And that first mode is you can choose whichever of the human cargo, Mm -hmm. these human beings, out of the cargo that you like, and you sell them Mm -hmm. in the Americas once landed. The money that you get from that sale is your
0: bonus. Interesting.
1: But for Richard Holden, all of his privileged slaves died or they were so emaciated and so sickly that he wasn't able to make as much money as he hoped. And he was actually trying to lead the slave trade to go work for the East India Company. Mm-hmm. And so if your pay is in people... And in specific human beings that might die or get sick, it's a kind of unstable bonus system. Right. So what became more common was for surgeons to be paid the equivalent of the average per slave price for the entire cargo that was sold. Meaning that your privilege really depends on... The amount of the of the amount of money that the merchant has made for the entire sale of the cargo, and so if you're selling 300 human beings and the average sale price is 35 pounds, you would end up if you got three privileged slaves, you would end up getting 35 times three. Gotcha.
0: What are some of the practices that surgeons and physicians throughout this the slave trade engaged in to at least attempt to one um, you know, select I guess the healthiest individuals for the cargo ships, and also how did they try um, to keep them alive on the ship, and also once they were anchored in their Americas. Yeah.
1: So it all begins. The initial encounter between doctors and slaves begins on the African coast when they are inspecting bodies. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people who are familiar with slavery in the Americas, they're familiar with the idea of the auction block and people being judged based on their physical abilities and, and those kinds of things. Well, what's happening in the slave trade is a little bit different. There is a particularly invasive kind of medical inspection that has to happen because they want to check and see if anyone has infectious diseases. mm mm-hmm including venereal disease. Um, The records that I've looked at for the examination of enslaved people on the coast shows that they're examining enslaved people for hours, even one person. For hours, mm-hmm. It's meticulous. They're looking at their teeth. They're looking in their eyes. They're trying to check the brightness of their eyes. They're trying to see if there's any signs of disease that would come through the, the color of the tongue or the state of the gum, something like scurvy. Um, they're looking at um, people's ability to move. So they have to jump and stretch their limbs and show that they are nimble they have to, sometimes their pulses are taken before and after these physical activities to see how well they do as, mm-hmm. as laboring specimens who have to do a lot of hard, hard manual labor. They're given um, examinations of their rectal and anal areas. They, the women, all of their genitalia is studied Touched, examined, including the cervix, men's testicles, scrotum, everything is under the scrutiny of these doctors with the help of mariners who need to pin people down or threaten them with violence if they don't comply. And so there are stories in the archives of. Merchants describing what happens when enslaved people resisted these particular bodily um, examinations, the whippings that occurred and um, the beatings. And so everything was premised on violence. And so when you think about the slave ship itself, that violence continues. Um, there was one surgeon who noted that the women in particular wept uncontrollably during these examinations and yet when they get on board it's just sort of the beginning of the horror that's going to happen. Right, it only gets worse. It only gets worse. The the captives are suicidal, uh, refusing to eat, engaging in armed rebellion against their captors on board ship. Mm -hmm. It means that doctors are trying to keep people alive who often want nothing more than to die. And so the practices that doctors engaged in to keep enslaved people alive was rather harrowing. They, for slaves that refused to eat, um, they would whip the slaves, the doctors would whip the slaves. One slave ship surgeon who I study and have read a great deal about through the parliamentary evidence when the British Parliament was investigating the slave trade and hearing witnesses. Isaac Wilson, one of the reasons why he says he could not continue working as a doctor in the slave trade is because he had to physically beat and whip slaves who refused to eat. And at the same moment, these same slaves are smiling at him while he is beating them, saying, as he says in his testimony, telling him in their own language, Presently, we shall be no more. Mm. They want to die. So as he's beating them...
0: They're hoping to die of these lashes.
1: Exactly, because it gives them their wish. Um, A lot of surgeons had to force feed slaves, so they would use thumbscrew or instrument called the speculum oris which you know mariners would pin the enslaved people down and the surgeon would you know have to sort of force their their mouths open and then they would twist this instrument that would force the mouth open wider and wider and usually it would break off their teeth in the process and so my god yeah so the the idea that surgeons in the slave trade Um, were in it for any kind of humanitarian reason seems an impossibility based Mm -hmm. on the records. And it also is an impossibility in terms of thinking about the kind of labor that they would have had to carry out. Women that are trying to hurl themselves overboard, um, they get chained to a mask to prevent them from committing suicide, One enslaved man, surgeon Thomas Trotter described who he goes down into the men's room where the enslaved are. And this man is bleeding from his jugular vein. And Thomas Trotter, the doctor is looking all around trying to figure out like what was this man using to injure himself? Mm -hmm. He's practicing self mutilation as many of the enslaved did. What instrument was he using? He conducts a very large search to see, is there some piece of metal? Is there some piece of wood? What is he using? He goes back to the enslaved man. He picks up his fingernails, and he picks up his hand, studies his fingernails, and sees that the man has his own flesh and blood underneath his nails. So the man is trying to rip his jugular vein with his, Completely with his, out, with yes. With his fingers. So um, the next day, the man does the same thing from the other side of his neck. Mm-hmm. And so Thomas Trotter has to restrain him. So he restrains him so that he, there's no way that he can reach his face with his hands. And the, man's, the man ends up starving himself to death. Wow. And these are, this is the daily social world of the slave trade for surgeons.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that must have been tough, both for them in some way, but hence why What's-His-Name decided to quit. Um, And so, I just think of the conditions on the ships and the potential rate at which infections may have spread around. Um, So, did it do anything for infection control on the ships, or...?
1: So 18th century medicine was rather rudimentary compared mm-hmm. to what we think of today. And
0: right. So, no
1: Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So what you end up having is um, a, a, a rudimentary knowledge of fevers. Mm-hmm. And one of the main benefits that happens during this period of time is the discovery of cinchona bark, which we know now is an anti-malarial. And was very effective in treating fevers. Um, so when in when I study the kinds of drugs that are on slave ships, I often see that there is a significant quality of quantity rather of this um, of this drug. Mm-hmm. It's also called Jesuit's bark or Peruvian bark, but it was a bark that was used to treat fevers and sometimes aff- effectively as well. Um, one of the slave ships that I study had carried about 700 doses
2: mm-hmm. of
1: that drug, meaning that if there was a serious outbreak of disease, you could begin to treat it. But if you have a slave ship that has 600 people on it and 100 people get dysentery,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Um and you're trying to treat dysentery or malaria or yellow fever, that 700 doses would diminish very rapidly. Right. So um, so the drug supply also was, was really important, and there's no way to really truly predict how much you would, you know, how many enslaved people you would end up even getting onto the ship.
0: And then how many and of them would end up getting sick.
1: Exactly. So it was very inexact.
0: I I guess I suspect that um, the slave trade in itself created a huge market for the pharmaceutical industry, or at least the early stages of the pharmaceutical industry in England. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So this was one of the very fascinating aspects of the project for me because no one has really done any writing on the nature of drugs in a pharmacy in the context of the slave trade. And I didn't imagine that I would be including this in my book project. And what I found was that there were a lot of apothecaries and chemists and druggists at the time that tried to capitalize on this new market for medicines. Mm -hmm. When I studied the amount of drugs being sent over on slave ships, you might have close to 200 different drugs. Most of these are plant-based medicines some of them are chemical remedies, including opiates, mm-hmm. but mainly plant based remedies um, that are being that are being put on board and the amount is quite vast um, i 've studied some of the manifests, and you have drugs weighing nearly four hundred pounds so this is a large amount of medicines on each slave ship, and so it provided lucrative opportunities for apothecaries and chemists and druggists to produce these drugs. One of the interesting things about uh, the drug trade during this period of time is that most of the drug suppliers were done by the Society for Apothecaries. Mm -hmm. So they were producing medicines for the East India Company and for the Royal Navy, And so, large bulk supplies of medicines are coming from that one organization for most of the 18th century. Whereas for the slave trade, it's spreading out into private businesses and private industry, and that helps to grow a manufacturing sector. And so, when I study the apothecaries and chemists and druggists who supplied medicines for the slave trade, you can tell that they are um, larger scale suppliers. They are doing wholesaling and distribution, and this is an important moment because medicines during this period of time are produced in small workshops. There's a large retail market for it where you're giving medicines to individuals and families. Single-dose draughts were really popular during this period of time, so you're providing small amounts of medicines that are neatly wrapped in beautiful papers and, <laughs> and with, with lovely writing on them. And apothecaries are able to, to make great money from these small retail markets because people are starting
0: to take more and more drugs in Britain during this period of time. Right, there was sort of this huge paradigm shift in the nature of the industry, I e- see. Exactly. And so what, I guess, uh, what I'm trying to understand is so what today are the remnants of that inception of then nature of the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah.
1: Well, there's one very clear connection, and that is Plowcourt Pharmacy from 1715, which was begun by a Quaker merchant named Sylvanus Bevan. And Bevan made most of his money supplying medicines to the Caribbean slave plantations. And through various iterations... Mm -hmm. that Plowcourt Pharmacy is now GlaxoSmithKline. Wow. And so if you go to the GlaxoSmithKline website and you go to their origin story and their history, you will see mention of Plowcourt Pharmacy starting in 1715. Um, You won't necessarily see information about... Any mentions
0: of slavery.
1: About the slavery, yes. No surprise there. (laughs) (laughs) But it, it is part of this longer history. It, it provided a huge market mm-hmm. for n- a number of different businesses. So slavery and the slave trade, they provided new
0: consumers, although these were forced consumers of medicines. Right. For you, just looking at today's landscape and you know sort of more contemporary history of the ways in which drugs have been sort of pushed into the market, um, not necessarily always with the best intentions, um, is how history informs, right, mm-hmm. how we practice medicine. Mm-hmm. And what comes to mind is the drug vital right, which was labeled as the black hypertension drug. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have the pleasure of having been your student, too, and I remember you being my workshop leader when we talked about this. Mm-hmm. So I wonder whether you can sort of help us draw a connection between the work that you've done um, to sort of the nature of the brewing mm-hmm. of things like vital and other, you know, happenings in the, um, in the medical field that aren't always as clear as us would like for them to be?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. I want to answer it in maybe an odd way, mm-hmm. which is to say that when we think about the 18th century and think about the, that particular history, it's really before... Biology and the, the biologization of race takes root in the way that it would later on so that you can conceivably develop drugs that are supposedly to help people of particular races because there is this racial notion of the body. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I think is really interesting, if we're going to draw connections between say, the slave trade and drugs and vital and some of these other practices that are going on, is to think about, rather than thinking about the body as a kind of repository for these kinds of drugs and drug practices, is to think about it from more of a social perspective. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is the nature of medicine, as we've been discussing in the slave trade, which was so brutal, which was so violent, it was only being wielded against people of African descent during this period of time. There was a major move in terms of how we can use medicine upon a particular group of people and this group of people is black and they are enslaved.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: When we think about these kinds of medical interventions today, and we think about how race has been mobilized in really problematic ways in terms of medicine, in ways that sort of occlude things that are actually going on, such as the social determinants of health, the fact that people are living in communities that are toxic, that are food deserts, where there are all of these other social and structural problems. If we think about something like BIDL, being an expression of a way to treat black people as a as a kind of secondary class status mm-hmm. that is one of the connections that I draw, and it's a troubling connection because I don't know if you remember, but in the material that we were studying for Vital, a close family friend of mine was being given that drug. Mm-hmm. And his wife was told that this was just a drug for black men and they were given no other information about it, weren't given any background on why that might be the case, what is the evidence for this. He was just told to take this drug and so he took this drug. He wasn't given the respect or the dignity of having a discussion about what this even might mean. And that mode of treatment where black people are seen as, you know, not worthy of being given proper information. Right, and stripped of agency. Stripped of agency that i think is the most powerful connection between what i see in the slave trade and when we think about medicine today there were new forms of clinical detachment and patient objectification that are happening during this period of time and the slave trade is one is is an extreme example mm-hmm. of that because you know as a doctor as, uh, as, as, a, as, budding. as, as a as a budding doctor <laughs> that some of these things are very important for you to do your job. You need to be able to have to be able to have distance, clinical distance, detachment, so that you can, so that you're not emotionally invested in every single patient that walks through your door. That's very important. But what happens when you are asked to commit brutality right, against, against the, patient the patients and and that level of detachment? comes into play because your role as a doctor in terms of keeping these people alive means that you've got to create or participate in brutal forms of violence
0: and that repeats itself times and times right in our more sort of contemporary history to me it speaks to the importance of learning history so we don't repeat the you know sort of transgressions of the field
1: absolutely absolutely that's one of the reasons why I called my book manuscript um, To Heal and to Harm because it is that really fragile relationship where medicine can be a source of healing but can easily be transmuted into a source of harm. Mm -hmm. Um, Even um, that book, Um, Oath Betrayed, about doctors in Guantanamo Bay working at black sites, I mean, there is a long and troubling history of abuse medical abuse and it's something that i feel is so important for us to reckon with
0: absolutely i can only hope that more of these teachings can be embedded in medical education yeah
1: absolutely
0: i really appreciate learning from you today and look forward to reading your book
1: thank you so much it was
0: a pleasure it was a pleasure i think i just learned a lot If you've made it this far, thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe, leave us comments, recommend us to your friends, and stay tuned for the next interview.